There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I see my whole job as trying to change the way we talk about things. We tried to do this vis-a-vis the Republican Party 10 years ago, and we said, hey, guys, if you don't do this, the Republican Party is going to <laughs> become vulnerable to demagogues. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This week on the podcast, I've got Raihan Salam, which is excellent. I've wanted to talk to Raihan actually since I've been doing this podcast. I've known Raihan for a long time. He is one of the most fascinating minds I've come into contact with. A very, very fast, interesting, unusual thinker. Raihan is the executive editor uh, of the National Review, which is a big conservative magazine. He's also a National Review Institute policy fellow contributing editor at National Affairs, a columnist at Slate, a member of the Board of New America. I'm not going to keep going with this because Raihan has more affiliations than anyone I've ever known. He has his hand in, in a lot of places, and so he knows a lot of things. He's also, I think, pretty relevantly, the author, along with New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, of Grand New Party, which was a, a vision a number of years ago, I think 10 years ago, he says in the podcast, for how to revamp the Republican Party so it is more attentive to downscale working class voters. Obviously, a version of that happened, not the version that, that Raihan was hoping for. But we talk a bit about that in this podcast. We talk a lot about the Trump administration, um, how it works, what Raihan has seen or has not seen in it, what has surprised him, how information flows or doesn't flow, how their policymaking happens, if that is the word one would use for it. We talk a lot about immigration. Raihan is very interested in immigration. Um, we have some pretty different views there, but but I, I think it is very worth hearing his perspective on this. It is neither the usual liberal nor the usual conservative perspective. Um, I'm not sure that the choice is the one that, that he frames it as, but I think it is very interesting to imagine um, the world if you do frame it that way. So I think that is a, a discussion really worth hearing. Talk about healthcare, about Graham Cassidy, about all kinds of things in the news. Raihan is, as always, a, a really fascinating and quick thinker, and I think you'll enjoy this quite a bit. So without further ado, here is Raihan Salam. Raihan Salam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ezra. I've wanted to have you on for a while. This is going to be a lot of fun. I am really pumped. So, <laughs> pumped. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so here's where I wanted to begin. What is it like being a Republican who cares about policy the way you do right now? And, and I mean it in this way. The Republican Party has a tremendous amount of power, more than it's had in generations. Um, it is in a lot of ferment, so there is a lot of possibility for new ideas to emerge. And at the same time, it has a president who I think policy-minded people had a lot of concerns about. Uh, it has seen its congressional majorities run policy processes that were, were depressing, uh, I think is a fair word for it. It seems more open to white nationalism than a lot of people had hoped. What What is the experience of being a Republican in this era like? Well, I guess I see the parties a bit differently than some. 
I see them as big, messy coalitions that evolve over time. I often think that we see more ideological coherence in past eras than people really experienced in practice. Uh, And so I guess I tend to see things on a longer time horizon. That sounds self-serving, but that's really at least how I think of it. Uh, So... Ross Douthat and I wrote a book uh, almost 10 years ago now called Grand New Party, and we offered an argument about how the Republican coalition was evolving and what that ought to mean for policy. And in some ways, I think some of what we anticipated came true. A lot of it did not. A lot of it wound up manifesting in very funny forms that we certainly didn't anticipate. Uh, But I really do think that when you're doing this kind of work, or at least for someone like me, the thinking is more okay, I have a thesis. I have an ideological thesis. I have a thesis about what the coalition is and ought to be. And that that's what kind of matters most. There are always going to be perturbations. There are going to be times when you are backsliding. There are going to be times when you make very modest incremental progress. What what kind of time is this? This is a time of confusion. So basically, I genuinely believe that Donald Trump has opened up the conversation in lots of ways on the right in the movement conservative world. Uh, And I think that by the time we're done with this process of kaleidoscope shaking, I think things are going to look very different. So there are some domains where I would argue that lots of Republicans are moving in what I'll characterize as a more centrist direction. Centrist understood not as the views of Mike Bloomberg, but rather centrist understood as, you know, roughly moving closer to median public opinion. Certainly, a lot of centrist views are more acceptable uh, as part of the conversation within Republican and conservative circles. There are other domains, however, where new issues have become salient and we're understanding these issues in different ways than we had before. Uh, So when you're thinking about how one coalition is evolving, it also is constantly evolving in dialogue uh, and in confrontation with a rival political coalition. So I actually believe that the ways the Democratic Party changed uh, over the course of the Obama years uh, wound up having a big and very surprising effect on the Republican Party. Uh, You know, if you look at the Clinton coalition in 2008 and the Democratic primaries, it had a big white working class component. And that is a component of the electorate that became kind of unmoored and loose and has had kind of complicated effects. Even though you're not necessarily talking about an enormous number of voters, I think that it had unpredictable effects on Republicans that a lot of Republicans did not anticipate. And some others certainly uh, believed that you were going to see some evolution in the Republican coalition in response to changes in the Democratic coalition. But again, the particular form that it took uh, came as a support. So there are, there are a lot of threads I want to pick up on here. One that I think is interesting, because uh, I think it's something implied in what you said, but I want to pull it out. Yeah. You were talking about the ways in which Republicans have moved maybe towards median public opinion, which is not Mike Bloomberg centrism. Right. And something in the, that I think is interesting there is there are a lot of issues where the positions you will find if you pull the public are coded as extreme in the Washington discourse. I think that's true on immigration on both sides. You have some people who are for quite a bit more immigration or quite a bit less, not the sort of comprehensive immigration reform Hmm. sort of things. Um, Drug policy, you see that a lot. Where do you see a movement towards what we might call like the populist center from the elite center? Where do you think that's a real movement versus just a rhetorical opening up? Well, I definitely believe that the way we understand and talk about the safety net is materially different than 
had been the case even 10 or 15 years ago. And among Republicans, there were always some of these implicit ideas, particularly in rhetoric. For example, devotion to protecting Medicare and Social Security for older Americans. But they were always things that you had to carefully parse. So for example, the official line on Obamacare was, we don't want to cut Medicare to create a new entitlement program. How that gets translated in politics, which is emergent, you know, you kind of see what winds up taking off. Uh, it's not something you can really centrally plan. What wound up coming across was, we don't want to cut Medicare. And the other half of that is that, well, we're also creating this new entitlement for this different group of people. We don't know quite what that's going to mean, et cetera. So I think that you have people in D.C., you have people who are deeply involved in movement politics who are of a more libertarian orientation than the mass constituency, than the voting base of the party. And so people used crafted language. What is the way I can say something that sounds roughly like it aligns with what people actually think? And you see this, you know, on both sides of the political spectrum, as opposed to, well, how can we kind of make sense of this? What is the kind of moral normative core uh, of the demand we're hearing? And again, you know, maybe you can't always make sense of that because uh, it's not as though most people think in policy terms. But I think that the crafted language problem created an opening for political entrepreneurs who could say, wait a second, there's a huge amount of distance between what it sounds like you're saying to your mass constituency and what you're saying. And political entrepreneurs who get things directionally right had a huge opportunity to basically disrupt and cause chaos. But this is a place where it seems to me that there is a lot of rhetoric now pointing one way and policy pointing another. So Medicaid being a very good example. Donald Trump, and this was a, an, an evolution on the Republican position, Donald Trump doesn't just say he's going to protect Medicare and Social Security, but says, I'm not going to cut Medicaid. I'm the only Republican who won't cut Medicaid. Then endorses a series of bills that have pretty deep cuts to Medicaid. Or to your point, I think it's a very good one about rhetoric that sounds one way and maybe means another. Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, any Republican you can think of, made a lot of criticisms of high deductibles under Obamacare um, for, for a period of years now. But despite the fact that the Republican Party's position on health care has never changed from actually high deductibles should be a key cost control dimension, you should have, in fact, higher deductibles in a lot of plans. And something that has actually surprised me, one of the ways that my expectations have proven wrong here is after Trump won I expected more movement towards what I took to be his policy intuitions. I don't think he's a details guy. I didn't think he was going to like sit with a pen and a yellow legal pad writing a very detailed plan. But I thought he'd say, nope, I said lower deductibles. Like you bring me something back that has lower deductibles. And instead, it has seemed that a lot of Republicans have insisted that they are holding to their rhetoric um, while, and, and Trump is, I think, an example of this, going forward on plans that, that are quite different. So the, the, the durability of the Republican ideological view has proven stronger given the challenge it's been under than I would have anticipated. I'm reminded of Pat Toomey's remark that congressional Republicans did not expect Donald Trump to win, uh, and that's one explanation as to why they were caught unawares. Uh, I believe that the critical Obamacare election was 2012. And in fact, that was the conversation uh, among people in the Republican conservative worlds inside the Beltway and outside of it. Uh, the idea was this was the opportunity to change course, to have a sharp change in direction. And this is going to sound to some of your listeners like revisionist history, but 
when you look back at 2016, there was not a lot of talk about Obamacare. There was this pro forma statement you'd get from people that they will repeal and replace it. But in those debates, there was actually very little substantive discussion. And it's actually amazing how thin a lot of the plans were. I mean, Jeb Bush had a relatively detailed plan uh, that resembled a lot of what Republicans in the Senate uh, have advanced. Uh, But that wasn't really the heart of the conversation. It was this different set of issues. And I don't think that was a coincidence. I think that actually, in lots of ways, people had moved on. uh, But there was this belief, gosh, now we found ourselves in this somewhat unexpected, surprising position. What do we do? You break glass in case of emergency. What are the ideas that we've had around for a long period of time? And this is in a way how this kind of stuff works. If you think about Jacob Hacker, he wrote his senior thesis as an undergraduate at Harvard about the defeat of Clinton care. And he's someone who devised with folks at Campaign for America's Future and elsewhere what they thought was a kind of robust, resilient plan to change the conversation about health coverage. So that was a thing that was available, ready-made, was adopted in succession by Democratic presidential candidates, and it became the basis. It's amazing how much influence you can have when you're someone who's doing that break glass in case of emergency uh, work when people aren't paying close attention. Now, when you're looking at the the Republicans who are doing that work, here's the tricky thing. A lot of them are people who fundamentally have a kind of libertarian orientation, who also recognize that, well, given the way our system works, uh, these are not views that are especially popular. We have to reconcile that with what is politically popular, and also what can get through the rules of reconciliation. Then you wind up with something that is not especially coherent. Uh, If you look at the Graham-Cassidy proposal, for example, it does this very strange thing. It ceases to spend any of this money in 2026. Now, to any ordinary person who's not super well-versed in inter-Republican politicking or on the rules of reconciliation, you might think, like, what? This is so bizarre. Like, why would you deliberately set up this weird fiscal cliff? And the reason is that, well, you can't just appropriate money outside of this window under the reconciliation rules. So if you're someone who's inclined to trust Republican senators, you might think, well, if this all works out, then we'll just extend that money. But of course, who is going to trust them? Uh, What reason do you have to trust them, especially when you believe that, well, these are not people who seem deeply committed to the idea of a sustainable safety net. These seem like people who are just, you know, what exactly is going on? Are they trying to fulfill a rhetorical pledge the best they can? Or like, what's going on? Or do they actually care about the fallout? So I think the failure to convey this sense that, oh, actually, no, we're serious. The safety net is not this thing that we're doing to basically buy the other things we want to get, and we're doing this as kind of sufferance, as penance. Uh, When you can't convey that effectively, then you're certainly not going to get a ton of buy-in. You're going to get a huge amount of skepticism. I want to bracket Graham Cassidy, because that's something I want to talk about with you a a bit later, but I feel like we could fall into the weeds of that very deeply. To what you were saying about the, the work that has to be done before a political coalition gets into power, right? Barack Obama came in and actually ended up with a health care plan that looked more like what Democrats had been converging around than it looked like what his plan during the campaign had been, yes. had an individual mandate, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody is even now, as far as I can tell, doing that work for Donald Trump. This, to me, is one of the central dynamics of, of the Trump White House that I, again, wouldn't have expected. Um, there's no more Steve Bannon. Jeff Sessions is very much out of favor. Then the other people around Trump, Kushner, Ivanka, Kelly, I mean, you can sort of go down the list. They are not committed to Trumpism, and nor, it seems to me, is Donald Trump. There was the rise of American Affairs, which was a kind of interesting journal that initially portrayed itself as it was going to be the intellectual journal of Trumpism, and then eventually sort of gave up on that and is going in its own direction. There has not been, either within the White House, um, within Congress, or within the broader 
conservative or even Trump-affiliated intellectual space a real effort at creating policy agenda, creating, sort of defining an ideology. And Trump himself does not seem perturbed by this. It isn't something that he is, you know, putting people in place to do. He is not getting upset when people bring him policies that don't accord with what he said during the campaign. I mean, this to me is a place where there's just this big hole. It's actually something that that Rich Lowry over at your publication has written about eloquently. Trumpism has no, like, ideologist in chief. And so the whole thing seems a little adrift. Bart Bonikowski has made this observation, which I found very useful, that populism isn't so much a program as it is a style. Uh, And populism is a style available to outsiders because for an insider, it's simply not credible to say that I'm going to be unbound and unconstrained. I will do these things that break with the system without necessarily having a program. So to the extent there was an implicit program allied with this populist style, I would say that, uh, you know, I describe it as a kind of developmental strategy, the idea that uh, we ought to have an industrial policy, that we ought to have a strategy, that we ought to craft policies in the national interest. Now, it happens that that is an orientation that I've always been drawn to, I've always found attractive. There are forms this can take that are corrupt and stupid. There are other forms that can be more constructive. And the funny thing is that when you look at the center left, if you look at the Obama administration, for example, there are people, you know, I'm not sure if they'd identify this way, but when I think of a Brad Setzer, for example, there are a number of other people who thought roughly in these terms. That was one tendency on the left. There were, of course, other tendencies that are more straightforwardly neoliberal, but that's one tendency that was there. That tendency has also existed on the right, and I'd argue that if you look back far enough, it was uh, a dominant tendency in earlier periods of our history. But uh, it wound up being a tendency you find on the margins. Someone like Robert Lighthizer, a veteran of the Reagan administration who now serves in the Trump administration. Here is someone who is a developmentalist. Again, I'm not sure if he would characterize himself that way, but he believes that, yes, some level of state intervention is right and appropriate to preserve a defense industrial base. Or it makes sense because we have a thesis about what we want our political economy to look like. Uh, And that means certain things vis-a-vis our engagement with the international economy. Um, But Robert Lighthizer was one dude. He was one guy who was a successful lawyer. Is he someone who had a school of thought? I think, again, there are people who would broadly share this orientation, but they weren't steeped in it. They weren't policy-minded people. And, you know, that partly reflects that for folks who gravitate to the right, particularly folks who are uh, gravitate to conservative ideas, you know, I think that there's this whole argument that whereas the left is a bit more transactional, a bit more half a loaf oriented, people on the right, we tend to gravitate towards these larger ideas, uh, the idea of liberty and defending liberty, uh, the idea of the nation and defending the nation, you know, a different kind of broad Uh, diffuse, not necessarily always super well-defined kind of idea. But what that means is that when it comes to translating things into policies, um, you're at a much more vulnerable position. Uh, You could also be at a much better position in the sense that when you have people who are seen as valid, when you have people who are identified with a tribe, uh, people that you broadly trust, that means that there could be some plasticity. There could be some room for them to take ownership and shape the direction. And theoretically, Donald Trump, I mean, I see him as someone who is a really shrewd political political entrepreneur who saw that a lot of the people who were dominant in the party and the people who were able to raise the most money as fundraisers, et cetera, they were kind of directionally wrong. Even if on any discrete policy, there might have been you know, a fair bit of agreement on this or that, they appear to be directionally wrong. And that created an opportunity for a candidate who is directionally right. Directionally right, meaning I'm for a safety net. I believe in it. I will defend it. Uh, on immigration, 
I believe that it should be in the national interest. Even when, by the way, his primary voters might have disagreed with him on discrete details on either of these big picture issues. Uh, and that's a really funny thing. And I think that he figured out that piece of it. There's this big vulnerability here. But, you know, I think to do the, the spade work of having an actual agenda, that's the work of years, if not decades. And, and people. That, I mean, that to me is one of the things here, that he does not seem to have built staff who is committed to that part of his agenda. And, and and he does not seem to be committed to having staff. I mean, Bill Clinton is not, a, in a lot of ways, not a great analog to Donald Trump, but he does come in as a reformer to the Democratic Party. And there are, one, he is interested in that work. Two, he's affiliated with institutions like the Democratic Leadership Council interested in that work. And three, he brings into his White House people like Bruce Reed who are interested in doing that work. This seems to me to be a real issue, and it's one I don't fully understand, and I'm, I'm curious if you do. Where are those people in the Trump administration? Why why is it so hard for them to find, even just for somebody else like Kushner or Kelly or someone to go out and find folks who are willing to do the spade work? Donald Trump doesn't have to do it. A chief of staff or a, a son-in-law in chief or whatever you want to call these folks, somebody else can, can oversee it. But it's not like a secret that this is an issue for the Trump administration. I mean, some of them talk about it. It's been widely talked about in the media, including the conservative media. And yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in, in, in changing it. And I don't really understand why. Well, part of the issue is that he has to draw on the existing ecology, the existing network of people who are Republican affiliated, who are willing to serve in a Republican administration. And that network was not something that was established, uh, you know, in the summer of 2015, when he announced his presidential campaign. It's something that's been around for a very long time. I guess I think of it this way. There have been these rival tendencies within the broad center-right universe that essentially became endangered, if not quite extinct. So John Connolly uh, was one of Nixon's protégés. He was a Democrat turned Republican. And he had a very different sense of what the Republican Party ought to be. He saw it as a party that ought to see itself as the vehicle of the economic modernization of the South and West. He was a believer in industrial policy. He was uh, an avowed nationalist and an economic nationalist. Uh, and he fared disastrously poorly uh, in 1980 when he ran for president. He raised a ton of money in Texas, uh, but you know he didn't wind up going anywhere. If John Connolly had done somewhat more respectably, if that became the rival position to Reagan's position, we'd be in a somewhat different position. Another part of it is that when you look at the Republican Party, so we keep talking about this group of people called moderates, moderate Republicans, and I think that one thing this debate over repealing and replacing Obamacare has revealed is that there's kind of no there there. There are people who are elected in bluish or purple states uh, who win from time to time and who fit their districts on this or that idiosyncratic issue. But is there actually an ideological idea for this thing that represents itself as an alternative to, let's say, the mainstream libertarian conservative thing, this gestalt? And I don't think there really is. So then you have these people who wind up you know, they, they, these are people who said that they were all for repealing and replacing Obamacare. And then when it actually comes to it, did they actually offer some coherent, thoughtful, well-developed alternative that is, you know, centrist, that is neither right nor left in some interesting kind of way, some kind of modernizing platform. And there wasn't really much of it there. There, It was a way to get elected. Not to say that these are people who would not be drawn to it if it existed, if it was ready-made in the universe. 
But if there had been this other faction that had some guts to it, then I think that you would have a different and more coherent and more constructive bargaining within the Republican coalition. But in a funny way, the problem for Republicans is that Republicans all believe that they're all conservatives. And so these ideological distinctions don't actually rise to the surface. So then you don't think rigorously about, well, what does that actually mean? On the left, you have some people who are like, hey, you know, you'll use different terms for it. But like, basically, I'm a social democratic type. And I believe that this is what the world needs to look like. And I see myself as distinct from people who are, let's say, more neoliberal. Now, those distinctions might be less real in practice. But, you know, there is this notion that this exists. And you have an infrastructure that, you know, arises you know, along those lines. Whereas I think for conservatives, there is this desire, even for people who dissent from the kind of mainstream uh, libertarian-ish consensus, there's this desire to say, no, 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 wait, we're conservatives. We're conservatives in good standing. And so you have to, you feel this pressure to make this backward compatibility. So look at someone like Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio was talking about political economy, talking about inequality, talking about economic opportunity in different ways. But he had this, he felt this enormous pressure, and I'm just projecting onto him, but this pressure to say, oh, I'm actually perfectly backward compatible with everything else. I want this big child credit, but I'm also going to eliminate all taxes on capital income so Americans for Tax Reform and Grover Norquist are able to get on board with this idea. Well, wait a second. Then you've suddenly not made a choice. You're actually not advancing a thesis about a changed coalition anymore. Um, and I think that that's the thing. Like, there's so much anxiety about not being backward compatible that it really constrained even those political actors who did want to open up the conversation prior to Trump. So think back to yourself on January 22nd. You know, so Donald Trump is sworn in. You know, we're, we're, we're entering this new political era. And think back to what you expected at that moment. What what has surprised you, for, for better or for worse? <sighs> a tough question to answer. I was honestly playing things close to the vest because, you know, it was really hard to know what was going to happen. And I felt like maybe this could go in a more constructive direction. You know, my hope is that he's the president of the United States. I dearly hope that uh, we do move in what I take to be a more constructive direction, meaning, uh, you know, as you said earlier on, you have these policy intuitions. How do you actually build them out? How do you, okay, so, you know, let's say tax reform proves more difficult than expected. Um, is there an opportunity to articulate a different set of priorities and actually do something about that? I actually do think there are people in the Trump White House who want to do that. Uh, but you also have a very unusual president who really had a very different biography from pretty much any other modern president. Um, so at that time, part of me was hoping that when Steve Bannon says, I'm thinking of this as a New Deal style attempt at a realignment, I want to talk about things a different way, I want to challenge some elements within the Republican coalition, I thought, well, okay, I guess my job is to try to think about things that would fit that framework. Uh, and I still see things that way. I mean, I could just emote constantly about how I um, am disappointed by the president. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, there's a place for that. And there are people who are much more articulate and compelling than I am who can uh, basically hold his feet to the fire. That is an important role for someone to play. For me, just because I guess I take this longer, what I take to be a longer time horizon, I'm just not as interested in, in, in you know, day-to-day -day politics. What I am interested in is, are there going to be people coming out of this administration, uh, are there going to be people in the country at large who did connect with this idea of some alternative and center-right politics? 
there was this demand for it. So I have to think, and I do think, well, what are things that would actually fit the rhetoric, uh, whether or not that's likely to become policy in the near future? Uh, and I think that there is an audience for it, and my hope is that the audience will grow. But what has surprised you? I mean, Ross Douthit and I um, have been very close collaborators for a long time. We wrote this little op-ed. It was over the summer, I believe, in which we uh, we the title was a cure, the cure for Trumpism, and we basically argued. Uh, what you need is this kind of national interest orientation towards immigration policy and trade. Uh, you need a policy that is more responsible. I mean, it's basically what we've been saying for 10 plus years. And then we got this response from some people who are more enthusiastically pro-Trump. And what they said is, this is, cr- well, yeah, you guys say all this stuff, but why aren't you more pro-Trump? Why don't you favor him? Why don't, why don't you want him to win the White House? And my answer was, I believe that he will be counterproductive. I believe that he will actually undermine some of the causes he's associated with himself with. I argued on multiple occasions uh, during the presidential campaign that he will actually cause people who want, you know, what I describe as a more national interest-oriented immigration policy, he will actually make their lives harder rather than easier because the only way that can ever happen, the only way um, that is if you actually win over second-generation Americans, if you make this part of strengthening a pan-ethnic working class, it simply cannot happen. Maybe in the mid-1990s, you could have done something without winning over a large part of that cohort. It is simply not possible to do that in 2017, nor would it be right to do it otherwise. So by the time I get to January 2nd, this has been a year and a half of me saying that these causes that he is notionally devoted to, he will badly undermine them. So I'm sorry to say that I, I don't feel that surprised you by anything that's You think he is badly happened. undermining them? You know, there, there's an argument about this. So among some folks on the restrictionist right, they believe that, look, this wouldn't even be a conversation otherwise in the absence of Trump. He is, you know, even though there are people who are deeply skeptical of him and think that he's been counterproductive in lots of ways, that's their view. That's honestly just not my view. Do I believe that he can still do good and worthwhile things? Yes. Uh, do I see a ton of indication that that's the direction we're heading in? No. And so, unfortunately, the terrible answer I have to your question is that no, I do not feel that surprised. You know, I didn't do a ton of writing immediately out of college. I was more of a researcher and more someone who is kind of, you know, trying to help other people do their work well. But one of the first things that I wrote under my own name was this piece saying that, hey, George W. Bush was elected. Uh, re-elected as president by getting the votes of waitress moms in Ohio. And now he's talking about privatizing Social Security uh, and about a massive guest worker program. This seems kind of funny and strange and not especially aligned with what he campaigned on. So I guess the fact that the Republican Party, the kind of mainstream of the party, has defaulted to doing exactly what they've tried to do uh, for 10 plus years also didn't come as that much of a surprise. What he has done, however... And I think that this likely would have happened with him or without him, but he certainly has accelerated this process, is I think that he has loosened some of what you might call conservative political correctness. This idea that we are always going to defer in certain predictable patterns. The supply siders are the ones who get to talk about taxes. The, uh, you know, the social conservatives don't talk about economic policy, all this other stuff. Everyone has this kind of division of labor. I do think that he has loosened that up. And I do think that for a moment, at least, elected Republican politicians felt a little bit scared and they were scrambling and they were trying to figure out what to do in a way that I think could have been constructive and maybe still can be constructive. But I don't think that Trump has done much to kind of deepen that tendency and to make that tendency more constructive, to say that, hey, you're afraid, you're uncertain. Here's a set of things that you ought to do. And if you don't do them, well, you're not 
right with a base, and he hasn't succeeded in doing that. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Let's talk a bit about immigration because this is a place where I think that you have some very interesting views. And, and also, I think this is something that we are just having even in the Trump era, a hard time talking about. So you wrote a you wrote a thoughtful piece in, I think it was 2016, talking about Republicans and immigration. And one thing you did in that piece was I think you started it in, in the right place, which is we often talk about immigration as a policy issue about the future more than about the present, um, as if we're sort of in the same situation we've been in for a long time. And, and something that you, I think, established well is that we're actually working through some very big changes. So you write... Roughly 13% of the U.S. population is foreign-born now, up from 4.7% in 1970. Um, Had the post-1965 immigration wave never come, the U.S. population today would be 252 million people rather than 324 million. Over the next 50 years, demographers at Pew Research say new immigrants and their descendants will account for 88% of all population growth. And and I want to put that out because I think that this is a space where we some, for reasons I don't fully understand, we have a lot of trouble talking about how fast the changes in American society have actually been. A lot of what we seem to me to be living through in politics is downstream from how America has changed, not just more of the same sort of long-running debate between the left and the right on tax policy. So how do you see that pretty fast demographic change as having changed American politics? That's a very astute way to talk about it, just the the speed of the change. So one thing I want to make clear is that when people say today's immigration levels are unprecedented, they are totally wrong. It is simply not true. They are not unprecedented. The thing that is really distinctive is that since uh, the founding of the Republic, birth rates have gone down. There was a blip during the 1950s and 1960s. When they went up, they went up quite sharply. And then we've gone back to the pattern of birth rates going down. First of all, whenever you talk about birth rates, it is definitely a huge creep alert. It just sounds like very kind of weird, but it actually has a big effect because when you have much smaller families among the native born, and also, by the way, immigrants very quickly converge on these smaller families, then it has an effect on the character of our society and our politics. Politics because basically older generations come to look very different from younger generations. And, you know, this is something that I'm keenly aware of. So I'm in this funny position. I am part of this post-1965 wave. My parents are immigrants. I was born in 1979. And, um, you know, when I was growing up, Brooklyn, uh, my hometown, was very much a city of white ethnics. It was a city that had undergone a huge amount of middle-class flight, but that was still the character of the place. And I was part of this new distinctive thing, and we felt ourselves as part of a small minority. And now as I get older, I see people 10, 15, 20 years younger than me. Their experience is very, very different. Uh, And their relationship to American identity, their relationship to uh, a certain pattern of class, a certain way of life. And I guess my perspective is that I want to be sure that we're all knitted together successfully, that the people who are the newcomers and the children of newcomers are knitted together in a way where we feel like we're part of a shared society, a shared set of ethics, and also a shared set of obligations, most importantly of all. And I guess the lens through which I look at this stuff is 
where I come from, and I think in large stretches of the country, there's a huge amount of second-generation poverty. And that is a really awkward thing to talk about because people who want to be good, optimistic, enlightened Americans, it's really uncomfortable because what you want to talk about are the valedictorians. You want to talk about the people who win the Nobel Prize. You want to talk about the people who are incredible Horatio Alger stories of starting businesses, X, Y, and Z. It's actually really awkward to say that actually, when you say to someone they are not eligible for Medicaid, uh, someone who is second generation, when you say to someone that the EITC, well, actually, we're deeply uncomfortable with increasing that for you or any of these other things, things that actually immigrants, second generation families really depend on. When Lindsey Graham, the namesake of Graham Cassidy, is simultaneously saying, gosh, we need people with strong backs, and we also need to drastically slash Medicaid relative to where it's likely to grow. When you say that, well, gosh, Jeff Flake, gosh, Lindsey Graham, people with strong backs and who do backbreaking work, sometimes they break their backs. Sometimes they become disabled. Sometimes they need help. So the question is, are those people us or are they them? If they're them, you can say, well, gosh, they're better off, including the second generation. The second generation is better off having been born here. And that is a deeply attractive idea. And it's also something that in this conversation, it kind of is an appealing position to take. But then the stepping back from that, and I guess I feel this as a second generation American, not to say that other second generation Americans agree with me, but I guess this is my lens. It's this feeling of, wow, these are people who are losing hope in the country. These are people, when you look at crime rates, for example- Who, who are these here? Uh, working class, second generation folks. When you look at crime rates, immigrants don't commit crimes at unusually high rates. Their kids commit crimes, uh, you know, these numbers are all very fuzzy, but at much higher rates than the parents. And I'm someone who believes that people don't commit crimes because they're evil. I think people get involved in crimes because they live in dangerous neighborhoods where they don't have reliable police protection and they feel like they need to be tough to protect themselves. So you basically have people living in this largely invisible archipelago of the country who are not participating in the promise of American life. I had parents who knew how to read and write in English. They had graduate degrees. They were people who had certain cultural resources. They never became rich, but they're people who had certain cultural resources that put me in a position where I was not, where I was able to navigate some of these institutions. But a lot of the people I grew up around, uh, they're not in that position. So my number one position is that I'm just not interested in this conversation about science fair winners. I'm not interested in the valedictorians. I'm just not interested in that. I'm not interested in the people who, I mean, first of all, it's wonderful and amazing that you have people who become Navy SEALs and they're amazing, but there are a lot of other people who come from broken families or they come from families that are desperate to get by, but their skills are not especially valued in an economy like ours. These are people who, if they're going to be knitted into their society and if they're going to give their kids a fighting chance to become part of the middle, people who are going to be full participants in our society, they need help. And I fear for what happens in a world where boomers die off. They leave their 30 to $40 trillion of wealth to their millennial kids. And those millennial kids are overwhelmingly white millennials. Whereas you have this second generation of people who are boxed out of that. So, so that I to wanna, me is scary. So, so there's a lot going on in this answer. Yes. <laughs> um, and I want to try to pull apart some yeah, threads. And, and first to get it, to get a good sense of where you are. And I'm a close reader of you on the, on these topics, but, but also to sort of maybe separate some of the issues that are that are at play here. So my sense of view is not that um, your concern about increasing levels of immigration. And, and, and I think it's fair to say that you would like to see immigration, at legal immigration, at least for a period of time constrained. You would like to see it lower than current law has it at. Is that is that correct? 
I would be open to that, but my main priority is basically the fiscal balance and how it affects our ability to integrate the existing immigrant population. So that could mean the same numbers. That could mean somewhat lower numbers. But the big priority is just what is the principle why on which we the, admit people. Why, why is the fiscal balance so important in the question of how we assimilate the immigrant population. I mean, if the fiscal balance is a question, it seems to me there are simpler ways to deal with the fiscal balance. Right. One of the simpler ways is to drastically reduce the size of the safety net and accessibility of the safety net to uh, the foreign-born. Or to increase taxes on rich people. Right, which... Or to cut... I mean, there... Well, first Washington of all... Washington is full of ideas First of all, I believe, to, I believe that we need to around. increase taxes regardless of what happens uh, vis-a-vis migration. So, I mean, I think that there are a lot of claims on that, uh, that added revenue that we're likely to get. But, you know, kind of leaving that aside, um, you know, I guess... When people talk about assimilation, I prefer to use the term integration. Uh-huh. You know, assimilation has its uses, but frankly, it means so many different things. Is it segmented? Is it selective acculturation? I mean, there are many different ways to talk about that, and I think it's kind of thorny, and people have a certain idea of what it means that, you know, kind of... But I guess for me, it's all about upward mobility and integration. And there, I believe that when you're talking about some of these working-class populations, then you know, it's really about how do we change the way the economy works. So basically, the economy will always be able to absorb immigrants of any skill level. It just means that we don't have self-driving cars. We have more people driving Ubers. You know what I mean? It just changes the way that we deploy labor. So I want to I pull that yeah. out. I, I, yeah. I, I think I know what you're saying there because I've read you talk about this, but I'm not sure I actually find it persuasive. Yeah. So I'm going to try to lay, lay out where, yeah. where I think this came from or uh, and you can tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah. So there are arguments you'll hear from people like me uh, that the replacement effect on wages is much less than people think. That, oh, yeah, I don't think that, wages right, are no, the no, issue. Right, yeah. so this sort of the crude anti-immigration argument is that you have these workers are all competing for a fixed amount of jobs or a fixed amount of wages. They're driving each other's wages down. I think a lot of research has, has thrown that into doubt. So what you're saying here is that by having a lot more low-wage labor in the country, what you do is you reduce the economic incentive to invest in labor-saving devices like driverless cars, um, cashierless, you know, uh, checkout stations, all kinds of things that would increase productivity in because you do not have that much labor at the bottom. That's that- part of the story. And so is, you know, excessively tight monetary policy is part of the problem. But yeah, I mean, so, I think so that that's roughly. Is that why? But I just because what you said is more immigrants mean fewer driverless cars. Is that like I, I'm trying to, right, I'm trying right, to pull right. that out. Less of, that's an, an less of an imperative claim. to embrace labor saving technology. Yeah, that's right. Is that really why these technologies are embraced? I mean, I think I think that is a I, I think there are a couple ways you might question that. But one is that while I am not a believer in our sort of post-work automation future, certainly it is not most people's implied view or explicit view that what we have is too little incentive right now for companies to replace people with machines. Um, that that feels like something people are very worried about, yeah. not something that if only we had more, you know, more of a push to do that. And, and that's actually somewhere, to be honest, that it does seem to me the science fair, et cetera, stuff matters. I, I take your point that that does not describe the average immigrant, but it does describe many immigrants and the people making driverless cars, the people running driverless car companies, a lot of them themselves are immigrants. So well, that that feels like an odd Well, just to be clear, like unfortunately, to those folks tend to be... So basically, immigrants are not immune to living in a stratified society. And as a general rule, the immigrants who are billionaire entrepreneurs, inventors, and what have you, they're the children of immigrants who are themselves people who had skills and training and were drawn from the elite strata of their native societies. There are exceptions to this. We highlight those exceptions 
uh, unfortunately, those exceptions are rare. They also tend to come from societies that make a lot of human capital investments uh, overwhelmingly. Uh, so I think that that's certainly part of the picture that's worth noting. When you're talking about the adoption of these technologies, I have a different view from you, I guess. I actually don't believe in the Phil Graham view that the most important thing we can do is maximize labor force participation. Uh, if there are people who need to look after elderly or sick relatives, I think I would like to have an affluent enough society where they could do that. Uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about how Obamacare might reduce employment levels by, you know, 500,000. Yeah. If the, it reduces employment among people who are only working because because they are desperate to have basic medical care. Uh, it's not clear to me that that's necessarily a huge loss in itself. So I feel like the conversation about labor force participation is a bit confused. There are some people, I think it is a huge problem that they're disconnected from the labor force. But if you were to tell me that we, you know, sharply increased GDP per hour worked, but that we have somewhat less labor force participation among, let's say, people who are otherwise getting more training, uh, people who are looking after kids, et cetera, I don't think that would be a disaster for society. Um, that's a whole other conversation but i guess you know that's but i guess i guess yeah. the place i'm trying to go here yes. is is as a long-time review this, this is somehow ringing odd to me yeah so what I'm, I'm hearing are concerns that feel to me like we could address them pretty directly if you're worried about how much research or how much incentive for deployment there is for labor-saving technology or you're worried about the fiscal balance it, it seems to me there are straightforward ways to get at that the question of integration feels like a very big question. The yes. question of what kind of society do we have? What are the cultural currents? What is the stability of its politics? Um, you can tell me this is totally off base. These, Some of these seem like they are uh, like aimed at constituencies a little bit uh, in, in American politics, right? Folks who worry about the safety net or folks who worry about, about technology. I guess my question is, is, are you really, are you really concerned about immigration because of these things? Or are you concerned about something more fundamental? I... I'm certainly concerned about those things because I see them of a piece with a larger set of concerns I have about basically the legitimacy of our institutions in the eyes of people, let's crudely say, in the bottom third. I think that that legitimacy has been badly undermined. And when I think about the, I mean, I'll just cop to it. I mean, when I think about the immigration question, you know, for me, it is overwhelmingly about basically the folks we have welcomed and absorbed uh, somewhat imperfectly, but, you know, and whether or not they're going to be able to climb the ladder. When it comes to future immigration policy, also about the kind of multi-generational poverty that we have. So basically, if you stipulate, which of course, you know, we don't necessarily have to stipulate, but if we stipulate that there are going to be a million people entering the country every year, one approach is to say, let us welcome those who are going to bring the maximum fiscal benefit as a vehicle to finance social programs that will see to it that we're knitting in this large population that we have uh, already that is excluded and that's on the margins, I think that that would be a good and valuable thing. To the extent that we're going to welcome people who don't make an especially large fiscal contribution, I believe that it should be people who are refugees or other people who are especially vulnerable. Uh, I don't necessarily think it makes sense to welcome people who are from upper middle income countries, uh, middle income countries uh, who are the extended family members uh, of people who currently live in the United States. That is a very fraught thing. It's a difficult thing, especially for me as someone from an immigrant background. But I think that that roughly makes sense. Um, I'll just note, just yeah. because I think it's not as intuitive to people, uh, in a global sense, Mexico counts as an upper middle income country. That's right. Now, Mexico, you know, there I, are I just other, want to make sure yeah. I understand. No, what no, you're no, totally, totally. Do, no, yeah. Mexico, you know, there are a lot of pieces to it. And, and my hope would be, you know, I think that actually the United States and Mexico should have a much more constructive relationship than we do. And also, when you're well, looking at. Well, they pay for the wall. <laughs> 
When you look at Latin America, Latin America is also aging very rapidly. So, you know, really a lot of the uh, less skilled immigration question that we've had in the last 30, 40 years is not going to be the one that we have in the future. Uh, I think that that's something that is not very well understood. But yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I think that that's right. If you're thinking about this in humanitarian terms, Mexico is not the society that we would focus on. So when you do think about it in humanitarian terms, so yep. I, I work closely with Dylan Matthews at yes. Vox. And Dylan is someone who believes there is a, a very, very, very deep moral imperative for a country as rich as America to let in an almost um, as many immigrants as possible. I think Dylan, Dylan leans towards the open border side of things. I think he's more explicit about his premises than a lot of people, I think, in a way that is admirable. And I think that that it, that is based on a, on a moral philosophy. I think he has written before that, look, if it really was a question between the health of, not the health, if it really was a question between the expansiveness of the safety net and being able to welcome people into this country in, in large numbers and really improve their circumstance, he would choose the latter. He just doesn't believe it to be a choice in that way. But how do you evaluate these arguments around what just in a moral way, in a humanitarian way, what we owe or what we should allow for people whom could really be helped by coming here? Well, I love Dylan's writing on this because I think you're right that he is explicit about what he sees as the trade-offs. And in a recent piece uh, in Vox on unconditional basic income, he made explicit that there may well be a Mm trade-off, and it's a somewhat sharp trade-off when you think about some of the more ambitious iterations uh, of a larger and more generous safety net. I guess uh, I think very highly of another guy, Glenn Weil, uh, who is someone who's thought about this trade-off very rigorously too. And his view is that we need a radical restructuring of our society uh, in order to meet what he sees as the these, um, you know, kind of consequentialist obligations to the global poor. I see this a bit differently. So I actually am a bit more of a believer in foreign aid than a lot of folks. I believe that it can be more efficacious than is commonly understood, particularly when you're talking about direct cash transfers. I think that there's more scope uh, to do good. Uh, I also believe that there is this funny situation where the resources deployed for a relatively small number of migrants in an affluent country could translate into very, very large transfers to people in the developing world. So when you look at people who are very rigorous and thoughtful about the cosmopolitan case for mass immigration, uh, they are not really talking about mainstream immigration advocacy. They are not talking about dreamers. They are not talking about uh, amnesty. They are not talking about... uh, aiding Mexico via guest worker program, et cetera, what they tend to talk about is creating large-scale, Qatar-style, Saudi-style guest worker programs that admit a much larger number of people uh, relative to the size of the population and ensuring that those people rotate. That is, they are in the country on a temporary basis. If you look at the Canadians, for example, they have a guest worker program that works tolerably well. It's also a program in which people are deliberately kept outside of cities. There is a deliberate effort to ensure that they are not forming families on Canadian soil and much else. It is a set of policies that I think many of us would think of as very draconian. So to my mind, uh, until we exhaust the possibilities of really investing thoughtfully, okay, so between now and 2060, there are going to be 2.5 billion people moving to cities. When I think of those people moving to cities around the world, I think of people who are seeking places with some modicum of the rule of law, places with basic, decent amenities. Uh, These are people who want better lives. I believe that countries like the United States, uh, also our European partners, the advanced countries in East Asia, we could be doing much more to ensure that that two and a half billion population could lead much better, more decent lives with resources uh, that 
you know, could be deployed there. Look at what happened in Sweden. In the wake of a refugee influx, they literally cut overseas development assistance that was doing things like funding bed nets and doing things like actually seeing to it that kids aren't stunted because they said, hey, we're absorbing this large number of people on Swedish soil. That is a natural reaction. That's what tends to happen. You shift away from overseas development assistance in ways that I consider very dangerous. I I am skeptical that that is the natural reaction, that that is the normal choice. So if I look at, say, American politics, I do not come up with a lot of examples of politicians who are, on the one hand, highly restrictionist, on the other hand, highly positive about foreign aid. I think that in the Jeff Sessionses of the world and people in his sort of conservative milieu, what you tend to see is an extreme skepticism of internationalism, of, of foreign aid, married to an extreme skepticism about immigration. By contrast, I think you see a lot of more liberal politicians who are both quite friendly to immigration and quite friendly to foreign aid. I I mean, this seems like a very classic both and to me, not not an either or. It's a legitimate disagreement. So I guess when I look at this, when I speak of the natural reaction, what I mean is what happens in a crisis-induced situation when you see what, you know, so for example, the Danes, this is exactly what happened there. The Danish Social Democratic Party used to be somewhat more open to migration, has become somewhat less so, but has also done that in concert with embracing foreign aid. If you look at New Zealand, uh, you know, the Labour Party now has adopted this very quirky position. They want to take more refugees and fewer migrants overall, which is an approach that I think is actually a very thoughtful and responsible one. And it's a party that is very aligned with higher levels of foreign aid. If you look at a lot of people on the right, and you see this in Europe, and also you see this in the United States too, by the way, there are people who are saying that when we're talking about refugee populations in the millions and even tens of millions, what you need to do is be thoughtful about you know, how many will you be able to provide for in an affluent market democracy uh, subject to bowel cost disease where services are quite expensive versus in the countries of first refuge where we might actually be more constructive and more supportive. You're right that this isn't how we talk about things. And the truth is that I see my whole job as trying to change the way we talk about things. Uh, you know, we tried to do this vis-a-vis the Republican Party 10 years ago. And we said, hey, guys, if you don't do this, the Republican Party is going to <laughs> become vulnerable to demagogues. Uh, and I think that when you're looking at the migration question, I think that what you're saying is totally dead on. There's this perception among a lot of people that the one way for me to be a humane, non-racist, non-xenophobic, tolerant person is to take this position uh, that you know we ought to be welcoming to less skilled foreigners. And I think that it is a very morally attractive and compelling position. My view is that there are other approaches we can take that are also sensitive to the fact that the United States is a different country today than it was in 1980 when Ronald Reagan spoke a certain way about migration. Uh, We have a different set of challenges. We have challenges that demand resources and attention. And uh, I guess that that's why I think that we need to change the conversation. And these people, by the way, people who take what I, my view, have always existed and they've been marginalized. Barbara Jordan is someone who I think took my view in the mid-1990s. Her voice has been marginalized. It just doesn't make as much sense. There are a lot of people who have something like this view who don't express it because they don't have the language for it. They don't have the vocabulary for it. So I guess a little part of my job is to give people this different vocabulary and also hopefully to kind of open their minds and to think a little bit differently about, you know, the two and a half billion people those are human beings. They matter. And if you're going to take them seriously rather than a kind of cultural politics that is really domestic with immigrants playing the role of mascot, then I think that we need to think on a different scale. So I'll I'll confess that I I feel like I'm a close reader of you. I haven't read that much from you on this foreign aid question. What does that different scale look like? What percentage of our budget should be going to foreign aid? I mean, it, it sounds to me like you're talking about a trade of pretty epic proportions. What does... 
I feel like I have a sense of your immigration theories. Yeah. I don't feel like I have a sense of what this trade looks like to you. Well, this is something I'm actually working on a longer project about it. Uh, and I'm actually working on a longer project about all of these issues. So, But basically, I believe that a meaningful increase in overseas development assistance, I also think that we should define what overseas development assistance is somewhat differently. So right now, for example, a lot of what the U.S. does is, well, you will purchase U.S. goods and services, you foreign country, uh, it'll be in the form of loan guarantees and what have you. And I think that, so I think it's it's actually part of a bigger rethinking of what we do. Um, and it might also be, hey, how do we think about increasing certain kinds of labor-intensive employment in other places at the same time that we pursue uh, industrial strategies at home? I'm of the very bizarre view, uh, admittedly, not a very common view, that nationalists of the world can unite. Uh, that is, that people who want to advance the national self-interest of their respective countries are not necessarily rivalrous with those of others. Uh, and I also believe that, you know, wanting the United States to, you know, have a healthier industrial economy could also mean, hey, and we also want more labor-intensive employment in India and sub-Saharan Africa, etc. Uh, so, you know, that's something that uh, you will read more from me about in mid-2018. All right, let's talk about one of your other big ideas, which is that we should go to, that we should substantially change the way American elections are held at the congressional level. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, how you think this should work. So the big picture question is, you know, I support proportional representation. I, I support a move to more proportional voting. Uh, one of your writers at Vox, Lee Drutman, is also a big proponent of this, and he's done really terrific work. I commend it to all of your listeners. Uh, I come to it for a uh, somewhat strange reason. So a lot of people who favor proportional voting favor it because they basically think that the Madisonian system does not work very well, and they believe that something more akin to a parliamentary system would work better, and they see that, huh, gosh, if you look at other advanced market democracies, they tend to have proportional representation that follows from that. My own view is that our system is designed to have broad, overlapping majorities. Uh, you know, when people talk about gridlock, Josh Chaffetz has this line about how gridlock isn't a thing, it's the absence of a thing. And our system is designed to make legislative action really hard. There, there are high hurdles to it. So, you know, my thing is that that's actually good, we don't necessarily want to have radical swings back and forth. We want to have these broad, overlapping uh, majorities built around consensus. But having a two-party system that is competitive creates the situation in which the parties are locked in total zero-sum dynamics. It is really impossible when the minority party realizes that, hey, if they achieve a win of any sort, it is necessarily bad for me. So it lends itself to this totally toxic partisanship. And it also lends itself to the situation where everyone believes we can only get things done when we are in power with these supermajorities temporarily, when we pass entrenching legislation that can't be reversed. And so the whole strategic game becomes like really corrupt and counterproductive to good policy. And I see proportional voting as a way out of that box that is in keeping with the fundamentals of our system. De define proportional voting. Proportional voting basically means uh, a variety of different systems. They can take lots of different forms in which, uh, you know, the share of the vote devoted to this or that political party is more closely aligned with the number of seats in the legislature. There are versions of it that can be more accommodating of independent candidates, and the version that I support would be, uh, but that's the long and short of it. So if Republicans win 52% of the vote, they get roughly 52% of the seats. Uh, if they win 35%, so forth and so what on. What is your unit here? Is it the national vote? Is it a state vote? Is it a 
Think of that as the lodestar. The goal is to have a more proportional system in which those things more closely resemble each other. Now, um, you know, again, there are lots of different systems you could use, and some of which are going to yield a more proportional system than others, and there are trade-offs. So the most proportional system you could possibly have would also involve sacrificing some of those things like more local representation. I favor a fairly modest move towards more proportional voting, uh, but that's the big picture idea, that you make things more proportional and also so you open the system up to minor parties uh, more than we do today. One of the arguments you've made in favor of the system that I that I found pretty interesting is that the kinds of votes that are ignored under the current system are qualitatively different than than, than people realize. So, for instance, you talk a lot in in a, in a piece you wrote on this about Republicans who live in New York City, and, <laughs> right? Somewhat parochially, yeah. <laughs> somewhat parochially, but but the point you make there is that Republicans who live in New York City are a moderating kind of Republican. They're a kind of Republican that, that really does not have much of a voice in the party and in, in national politics anymore. And similarly, Democrats who live in red states often are a different kind of Democrat. Now, often they're um, African-Americans. So that's, you know, that and the way gerrymandering works, uh, they, they tend to be packed into districts. But you do have a lot of more conservative Democrats who, as migration patterns have changed, as the, the parties are more effectively gerrymandered, they're now packed into these weird districts and, and, and they're not heard from either. And so it isn't just about how many seats each party has. You could, it probably would not be the case that if you implemented reform like that, the seat share would stay the same. But if you imagine it did, you could nevertheless imagine a change in what kinds of voices were represented, what kinds of folks held these seats, that, that there's something happening about who ends up and about who ends up exerting control over elected representatives. That struck me as an interesting feature of this. Yes. When I think about Republicans in a place like New York City, it's as simple as Republicans who regularly use mass transit. I mean, it's not even so much, you know, maybe they're going to be more moderate, but maybe not. But fundamentally, they just have a different lived experience. Similarly, when you're talking about rural Democrats, you have a pretty similar dynamic. When you talk about uh, voters of color, this is actually a pretty interesting issue. So if you look at African-Americans, this is a population that is hyper-segregated. I mean, it varies region by region, but you could talk about majority-minority districts in a more or less coherent way. But when you talk about other minorities, uh, Latinos, Asian-Americans, they're much less, uh, it's much less tractable to try to create districts that are majority-minority districts for those populations. But And also then beyond that, you go to lots of other communities of interest, right, uh, including Democrats in rural America. And yeah, I mean, I genuinely believe that our democracy would be a lot healthier if in these large expanses of rural America where you have people who are politically left of center, if their voices were heard, but hey, you know, maybe they might be pro-life or maybe they might have uh, different views on all manner of social and cultural questions than the kind of coastal Democrats that, you know, we find most recognizable. Um, and I think that that would lend itself to different coalitions. Uh, and also in a funny way, thought about this deeply enough, but it's kind of interesting to think about the kind of competitiveness uh, and also what happens when you have some, let's say a minor party, let's say three or four minor parties that wind up becoming quite important and influential, but that represent constituencies that otherwise tend to be ignored. Uh, I'm not sure. It's hard to know quite what that would look like in New Zealand when they moved to a more proportional system. I mean, it just wound up being a very unpredictable uh, thing, the effect that it had on, on local politics. I'm not sure quite what it would look like, but I do think that it could be really salutary to have a world in which, hey, 
I know I'm not going to be aligned with you on this, but I could be aligned with you on this other thing. So if nothing else, I am not going to engage with you in kind of scorched earth politics of, you know, this intense negative partisanship that defines our our discourse now. So you've written about this in a, in a number of venues. Have you gotten any interest from Republicans of your uh, association on it? I have definitely gotten interest from conservatives. Uh, I've gotten interest from, you know, writers and thinkers. I've gotten interest from lots of, you know, readers, uh, lots of rank and file folks. But among elected Republican politicians, this is just not something that's on people's radar. And it kind of makes sense because when you're temperamentally conservative, period, uh, this is something that sounds kind of exotic. But it's also part of why, and I say this not as a ploy, I really think the way to start thinking about this is, what was our system meant to work like? It was meant to create, I would argue, these broad, overlapping majorities. Do we create those majorities, or do we have this dynamic in which everyone wants to pass entrenching legislation? I mean, I think that actually there are a lot of Republican conservatives who are now thinking in these parliamentary terms. We have the majorities in the House and the Senate, so clearly we should be able to do things that are profoundly unpopular. It's really weird. It's like this, no, that doesn't make sense. Actually, the system is working when there's something that is incredibly unpopular, that is opposed by like 60-70% of the public. Even if you happen to have gripped onto a majority due to a lot of fun circumstances and a, a successive series of elections that were a little bit quirky. You could say this for Democrats or Republicans. It does not mean that the system has failed when you can't ram this through. That That's a good bridge um, to, to talking about healthcare a little bit here, because we're, we're, we're speaking uh, at a moment of intense interest in Graham Cassidy, the sort of third Republican uh, healthcare, third, fourth? It's a little hard to keep track now. Hard to know, yeah. There's a House one, skinny repeal, the, the McConnell bill, let's say fourth. You know, like the other ones, will looks like it will be relatively a close vote. Um, I don't think anybody quite at this point knows how it will go. Uh, they've got to do it very, very fast because of rules around reconciliation. The thing I want to ask you about this is you and I spoke a lot during the Obamacare passage process. You, you were involved in that debate. I, I did a lot of reporting on that debate. One of the things that I heard from every Republican I knew, every Republican I spoke to, every staffer, every elected official, everyone— was a real feeling both during and in the aftermath that Democrats fucked up that process in a way that was immoral, in a way that was counter to the traditions of American governance, and also in a way that ended up hurting Democrats. It led to legislation that wasn't good enough, that ended up creating a backlash. It gave Republicans back the House. And so I have been really struck watching Republicans run a process that is faster, has fewer hearings, has fewer amendments, fewer kind of spaces for open debate and open modification that um, has less sort of analysis, not just from CBO, but really from anybody. It's not, I'm I'm not struck that Republicans have a bunch of ideas I disagree with. I am struck by the fact that they are, are taking a process that I would have thought for sincere or insincere reasons that it was their lesson out of Obamacare not to do it this way. And it felt to me when I talked to them, they really believed that. I, I don't almost even know how to frame it. I don't know if it's hypocrisy or it, it's something like, I'm not even sure which charge I'm making, but how do you view this part of it? How would you tell me to look at this? This might be a disagreement between uh, the two of us. I'm not sure. I do believe that if you had a different Republican president, that the process would look somewhat different. I'm not sure it would have been a perfect, pristine process. Mm -hmm. I'm skeptical that it would be. But I do think that under a more, quote unquote, normal uh, course of events, it might look somewhat different. You know, I guess the way that I see this is 
there is something very broken about how we legislate, period, how Congress works, period. Uh, and I think that, you know, when I look back at the Obamacare process, what I see is a very strategic, deliberate process that started long before that Congress to think strategically, okay, we have Peter Orzag, who's someone who has experience. He's someone who had actually run CBO prior to running OMB. Let's look back at the Clinton experience and what had happened. And also let's bring stakeholders, not just stakeholders within the Democratic Party coalition, uh, within the caucus, but rather let's bring stakeholders from the outside to see to it that this is survivable. When I look at what Republicans did, I see a very different process. I see, okay, let's try to get Republicans to agree on something. Let's try to get the majority of the majority and try to get something that is going to barely going to inch over through reconciliation. We might try to engage the insurance industry as opposed to medical providers and a million other constituencies that exist on the outside. But that's pretty much it as far as trying to win over some constituencies outside. It was a very insular, um, you know, kind of uh, belly button staring kind of process. And that's what I found both surprising and also just insane. And I attribute that to the fact that their victory came as such a surprise, or I should say the victory of Donald Trump came as such a surprise. So beyond that, to get anyone to kind of defend the process, I mean, you're putting people, you know, in this very awkward position, because I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of these staffers would totally be like, yeah, I mean, this is nuts. Uh, I've no had no staffers on. defend the process to me. Yeah, that's, what's, think, that's yeah, why I'm actually bringing this question. Yeah. I'm not asking you to defend the process. I, I am Oh, no, no, no. Well, first to, of yeah, all, yeah. I, oh, no, I'm quite comfortable condemning it. Uh, <laughs> I think that it makes, uh, but, you know, yeah. But we don't, I actually agree with the, the way you just framed it out. The, the thing I don't get is that, um, and it's a, it's a real question, I'll, I'll just say, for my work going forward. So, you know, I listen to a lot of Republicans tell me, hey, look, the way we legislate is broken. And Republicans had a theory about that. I mean, it was constant in 2012 and 2013 and 2014 and 2015 and 2016 to talk to Republicans and hear them lamenting the death of regular order. When Mitch McConnell, prior to winning back the Senate majority, gives his speech on restoring the Senate, it is about bringing back regular order. Um, he actually says that if I had been running Obamacare and I saw that I couldn't get a single vote from the other side, I would have stopped. Like, that's what you do. You stop. I, I am used to... Look, Democrats have a million pieces of procedural hypocrisy in their backgrounds. I mean, you know, the filibuster every couple of years or the parties switch sides on whether they like that or not. They are, I, no, nobody's hands are clean here. This has just been um, a place where it seemed to me that Republicans had what had become a, a part of the ideology, a part of the theory. And it got abandoned very fast. And, and the reason I don't really buy into the idea that it's Trump's fault is that Trump has been talked into this process by the congressional leadership. This reconciliation maneuver is weird, and it's not necessary in the way it's been done. It certainly was not necessary to do this kind of dual tax and health care. Could also wait a year and, like, take some time, do the bill. People try to do things in the second and third and fourth years of presidential administrations. Donald Trump didn't understand it. He didn't create it. He didn't lay the groundwork for it. I mean, this is Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, who are experienced legislative tacticians. They backed him into this. And I think actually not to his benefit. And I think that he's been angry about it in, in different ways since. So th that's a place where it's a little hard for me. I do agree with you that if Jeb Bush had won the election or Mitt Romney or one of these folks, they would have had a different staff. They would have taken more control of the process and would have forced a somewhat more orderly process. But that's actually what's weird about it. It is weird to say that um, 
you would have needed a different Republican president to impose a better congressional process because this was driven by the congressional wing of the party. Oh, but that's not unique to these guys. I mean, I think that basically, you know, we have this notion that the presidency takes the lead that is entrenched. That is something that, you know, certainly the Obama administration played a very serious and central role in the Obamacare process. Uh, And I think that in the absence of that, I think you may well have seen a very different legislative settlement and a very different process. Uh, You know, this, you know, again, I have like zero interest in defending exactly uh, how this is unfolded. I do think that from their perspective, I think they see it as we have this limited window of opportunity. We had the opportunity with these two reconciliation bills, uh, you know, so we ought to use it. If we don't use it, we will have violated these promises. And frankly, people have this very bizarre reading of what those promises were. So I'll put it to you this way. Uh, There was this period, if you look at ACA and early iterations of BICRA, there was this idea that, okay, you know, we're achieving these savings, uh, according to the CBO, from future federal Medicaid spending. And then it happened to very neatly match some of the reductions on the tax side. Now, there are people who I really believe were entirely genuine who'd say to me, well, that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to uh, cut Medicare to cut rich people's taxes. It's just that the taxes are the only thing we can really get rid of root and branch in Obamacare. Okay, fine. I believe you're being sincere, but this is so bizarre to anyone who exists outside of this tiny little world, this tiny little ideological echo chamber. It just makes no sense. It can't be parsed. And I think that that is also like a very big problem. So if I think about the class premiums under Obamacare, this is something that pretty much everyone thought was not as, you know, not super sustainable. It didn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but it was helpful in the first real 10 quick. years. Class was yeah. a program in Obamacare dealing with long-term disability care. A really legitimate and important issue, but it was not a fiscally sound way of addressing Yeah, and it eventually problem. got excised from, I think got repealed in a later bill, didn't it? Uh, I think that it was actually administrative, but- uh, you know, Anyway, it's, yeah. it's gone now. I just wanted to- yeah. But I mean, that was a thing where, but it actually did help account for a lot of why Obamacare was deficit improving in the first 10 years, which at the time was considered really strategically important. But I mean, I think when you're looking at the Republicans, the deeper problem is with the Democrats, there are a lot of people who are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. And one could argue that if you care about things like expanding Medicaid and what have you, I mean, they earned it. You know, they're clearly very committed to that. If you're a medical provider, uh, you know, kind of in a state, I mean, that's something you can count on. With Republicans, this really felt like this backwards effort to kind of take something and contort it into a form that you could characterize as repeal and replace. And I do think that there have been some good and thoughtful people advancing ideas that I think of as interesting or sound like one idea that I've always been drawn to, and I made this argument years before, and it wound up becoming something that some Republican lawmakers embraced, this idea that actually we should keep the exchanges and transition them into actual high-risk pools, unlike high-risk pools championed by Republicans earlier on purely as defensive maneuvers to prevent some other kind of coverage expansion, they should be properly funded and they should be a genuine safety net. And then you have this message, you will be protected. Same thing with Medicare. In a way, like Paul Ryan, that was a very funny thing. He said, no, I favor Obama's spending on Medicare. I just want to change the structure of it. What they didn't do is give you the second part of that message, which is that we believe that this will yield savings over time. If it does not, we will raise taxes on rich people. We are happy to do that. It happens that we are making this gamble, but what we are not gambling on is on you and your health care. I think you could have made a, a similar argument about 
protecting people who are high risks. And I think that some of them sort of were stumbling in that direction, but they didn't know how to message it. They didn't know how to talk about it. Some of them didn't really understand exactly what they were doing. That seems overly optimistic. I mean, it seems to me you didn't see that because that's not what anybody wanted to do. Uh, You know, I'm not so sure about that. I think that there were people like Ron Johnson, I think Ted Cruz inched in this direction, who accepted that, you know, kind of clearly there's going to have to be some protection for this population. But, you know, again, that could be wishful thinking on my part. I do think that when you're looking looking at the White House staff. I think that if you're looking, uh, I think there were some senators who were gravitating towards this. The problem is they were learning on the fly. They're doing this in the middle of a process. Whereas if you're looking at Obamacare, so first of all, like most of those lawmakers were like, well, I'll roughly defer to what sounds like a plausible way to expand coverage. And this is a directional goal that I like. On the Republican side, the directional goals were kind of clashing. For some of them, it's simply lower spending and lower taxes. And if that's your directional goal, like, well, oh, by the way, we also want to have a safety net for people who are sick. I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to reconcile that with these other things. And thus you get these really incoherent seeming legislative proposals. Yeah, that that, that part definitely seems right to me. Um, All right. I have taken up enough of your time here, but I want to ask you the question I, I always ask people to close the show, which is what are three books you've read that you care about? They've influenced you that you think that you think my audience should read? Who? Um, So there's a book I have just finished uh, by Dan Doctoroff, the former deputy mayor of New York City, called Greater Than Ever. It's a memoir. It's not the kind of thing I'd normally read, but it was a quite neat look at a kind of earnest, pretty humble person talking about how he stumbled in through a lot of big, complicated issues relating to the city of my birth. And uh, that's something that I I really appreciated. Uh, Gosh, um, there is this neat little book by Elaine K. Mark called How Change Happens. It's a very short book that I think would be of great interest to some of your listeners who are, of course, very policy engaged and obsessed. Um, And it's just talking about you know, one of the kind of neat ideas in the book is just this idea that there are some things that are pre-political that are not yet governmentalized. Once they are governmentalized, it's very hard to reverse that process and de-governmentalize them. And I think it's something that is something to be aware of when we talk about healthcare in particular. And, and I believe that for a lot of folks on the right, what their real agenda was to somehow find a way to de-governmentalize this issue, but they didn't really have a roadmap for how to do that. And that's sort of how I think about the uh, the issue. Um There is a very neat book called The British Dream by David Goodhart that I'm a big fan of. It's a book that I find very sensitive and thoughtful about migration issues. I can't say I agree with everything Goodhart has to say, but, uh, you know, he's also someone that I've profited from talking to at length. Um, Yeah, so those are three that immediately leap to mind as uh, worthwhile. Rahan Salam, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Raihan for being here. Thank you to all of you for listening to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Peter Leonard. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production and we'll be back sometime in the future. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.